Women's Fight Back, Winter Spring 2021 edition. Page one, strike. An interview with Eva Postichenska, an abortion rights activist from Poland. On the 27th of January, a near total ban on abortion came into effect across Poland, three months after a ruling by the country's constitutional court. Poland already had one of the most restrictive abortion laws in Europe, but the new law, which removed severe fetal abnormalities from the list of exemptions, was seen as totemic and part of a more general assault, a generalised assault by the ruling Law and Justice Party against Poland's democratic institutions and minorities. In response to it, over the course of October and November, gigantic demonstrations gripped the country, shutting down many towns and cities and maybe creating the basis for a renaissance for left-wing movements and feminism in Poland. Women's Fightback spoke to Eva Postichenska, an abortion rights activist based in, in between Warsaw and her hometown Gostinin. Like many European migrants living in the UK, Eva moved back to Poland in March 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic after four years of studying at the University of Surrey and LSE. Almost immediately, she says, I started to feel quite weird here because I realised how radical my views are now in comparison to the people around me. Not only my family and people in my hometown, which I knew were quite conservative, but also in Warsaw. My friends suddenly seemed so conservative, or rather, I seemed very radical to them. The experience of coming home confirmed to her that what was needed was not a careful defence of the existing very restrictive laws on abortion, but a much broader and more radical campaign, some kind of movement that would start shifting those ideas. Then, on October 22, 2020, came the ruling of the Constitutional Tribunal, a body almost entirely composed of judges, nominated by the PIS government since the constitutional crisis of 2015. When the judgment happened, I was in Warsaw, remembers ever. I felt like something kind of crumbled. People started to realise that this was only the beginning. More and more, their rights and freedoms would be taken away. The ruling was not the first time the PIS had attempted to change the law. Four years earlier, Parliament had voted down an attempt at the same law change after Black Friday protests kicked off across the country. Since then, women's rights organisations have been subjected to raids and repression by the state, and those parts of civil society offering basic support to vulnerable women have had their funding switched off. LGBT rights activists have continued to wage a constant campaign against a government which talks openly about the dangers of LGBT ideology and genderism. Across much of Poland, local authorities are now declaring themselves LGBT-free zones. Then there was the response to the government's stacking of the Constitutional Court in 2015, which saw large-scale protests. At last, in October 2020, the movement came to life with a new force through the prism of opposing the abortion ban. What you could see was a new spirit of solidarity, says Eva. There was a spontaneous protest in front of the house of Kaczynski, the leader of PIS, in Zolibos, a district of Warsaw. It was very spontaneous, without any serious organisation behind it. Just some social media posts that had started to spread. By the following day, the protests had become more organised, 
as the infrastructure of the movement, which started in 2016, um, women's strike started to kick in. The scale and energy of the protest shocked everyone. There was singing and shouting of the slogans, thousands of people marching together, a lot of young people, men as well, she says. At that moment, I really felt like, wow, something might change. The whole of October and November was like that. The protests were, by some way, the biggest since the fall of communism in 1989. By the end of the month, many hundreds of thousands of Poles had taken to the street across more than 400 locations, and they rolled on for a whole month longer. Barriers and divisions. The protests face a number of immediate difficulties, most obviously the level of police repression on display. Already on that first day, says Eva, the police came in huge numbers and used pepper gas. It was violent and this sparked even more anger. As the protests continued, the state repression intensified. And while, as in almost all mass protest movements, the violence mobilised sympathy and determination in the short term, it was a most it was a motivation to continue and not let them crush us. It inevitably took its toll later on. At the time of our interview in mid February twenty twenty one, says Eva, there's a case happening in a town quite close to me. Three activists are accused of offending religious feelings. The activists put up some posters and stickers with a picture of the Virgin Mary and the LGBTQ flag. Very harmless. It tried to show the, hypocr- the hypocrisy of the church, which claims to be open to everyone, but is still very offended by the LGBT flag. There was a solidarity demonstration planned at the court on the day we spoke, and she says people are still following events and trying to coordinate solidarity for those facing po- prosecution. Wary of state surveillance, the movement has turned to encoded apps, telegram and signal to organise, and in a country where human rights record and constitutional irregularities are the subject of constant criticism by the European Union, there is newfound sense of fragility to the right to dissent. The other immediate difficulty is the degree to which the movement is divided over its aims and demands. At the beginning, many people came together, but they were still from very different sides, Eva says. Some would support going back to the so-called compromise, the situation before the latest court ruling, still the most restrictive abortion laws in Europe. Others wanted abortion in any case. I would say the latter group was bigger, but it wasn't everyone. There is a constant tension between radicals and moderates in the movement, she says, and that extends to tactics as well. When we started to target the churches and there were some actions that were controversial, for instance the writing on the walls of churches or entering during the Mass on Sunday and standing there silently in protest, some people just thought it was too much that we shouldn't go that far. Eventually, Eva began to organise in her home time and found an organised found an audience whose mood was in flux. The Catholic Church has a huge impact on how people think about these questions, she says. And as someone who is from a very small town, my dad is a very devoted Christian, I understand how these people think. They are scared to support a movement like this because they feel like they will be punished eternally for their actions. But at the same time, many of them would have this internal struggle because they would feel the abortion, that these restrictions are too much. So even on the right, even amongst supporters of PIS, they started to question their politics and why they were voting for them. This was visible in the polls, which started falling very quickly. 
Among her fellow protesters, the mood was also very different to the roaring crowds of Warsaw. I could see again a very different dynamic because people were much more fearful. I remember at one protest I had the megaphone and I wanted to lead the demo down the street with the town's main with the town's main church. It wasn't a particularly big group, maybe 200 people, but they were so stressed by the idea of marching on the road and so we didn't. And the slogans were different too. The slogan of big protests in the cities was Why Pierre Dalac? Get the fuck out. They weren't comfortable with that either. They would rather go for this should be our decision, or I decide, those kinds of slogans. The new left hibernating. Eventually, however, the movement petered out towards the end of the year as the government delayed implementing the new law. It was a crucial mistake, ever says, for the women's strike not to capitalise on this period organisationally. Women's strike did not create organisational structures in the smaller towns when they had the opportunity to. They didn't introduce a system of membership, They were an organisation of leaders who made decisions on behalf of everyone. They introduced Lumio as a platform to host discussions and they used social media to contact supporters, but that didn't translate into real democracy. Without any rank-and-file organisation, the role of women's strike is today limited to, in Eva's words, that of a help desk. They have a helpline which you can use to call call them. They barely organise their own initiatives, rather they just support other people's. I believe that there's still this revolutionary potential, Ever says, but it's kind of put to sleep. Let's say waiting for a better moment, looking for strategies, looking for ideas, hoping that the parliamentary strategies that are beginning are being proposed will work. To understand the deeper political problems at play, you have to look to Poland's recent past. We do have a tradition of struggle, she says, but it's been forgotten. Throughout the 1980s, and the roots of the movement stretched all the way back to the 1950s, An independent workers' movement led by Solidarność waged an inspiring campaign for better conditions and against the Stalinist regime, including some of the biggest per capita strikes in any country in world history. But over the course of the decade, the leadership of the movement turned to the right. As president of Poland in the early 1990s, Lech Walesa oversaw a barrage of free market reforms and privatisations, and went on to endorse the US Republican Party in a number of elections. Although Solidarność was successful in many ways, Ever says, it was also very unsuccessful because it didn't see the change that the movement because it didn't see the change that the movement had fought for. And I believe that the past few years in politics have shown the impact of these mistakes. It makes people feel less hopeful and less tr- trusting of any kind of mass movement. Today, the left is a marginal, if growing, force in Polish politics. Ewa is a member of Razem, which translates as Together, a relatively new left party which formed as a more radical alternative to the communist successor Democratic Left Alliance. It played a crucial role in initiating the 2016 abortion rights protests and is high profile in the European left. But Ewa says Razem is very small. It has three or four thousand members, maybe. They have representation in Parliament, but it's only six MPs. In the absence of a mass left or even centre-left party, the task of opposing the PIS government falls to Civic Platform, a liberal grouping affiliated to the centre-right European People's Party. 
The problem with Polish politics, Eva says, is that the whole political discourse is very much on the right. For years, people were choosing the lesser evil and civic platform ruled for at least eight years. It's actually quite interesting what is happening inside the civic platform right now. This is the party that was the only threat for PIS in any election, but it's full of conservatives and they are, even now, debating what their position on abortion is. Most of them want to return to the so-called compromise, the situation we had for almost 30 years. But I think that they have started to realise that this is not what the people want. They have to start listening to the people on the streets and to some of the women in their party as well who have started to push for a more expansive right to abortion. On 18th of February, since our interview took place, Civic Platform announced its support for abortion up to the 12th week. This policy includes substantial qualifications, however, for instance, a requirement for the person seeking an abortion to to consult a psychologist. The policy has been heavily criticised by Razem and virtually all activist groups, including Women's Strike. Much of the debate within Civic Platform focuses on the possibility of calling a referendum on abortion, something which many of the activists in the Polish feminist movement oppose. As Eva explains, I can't even imagine how the question would be formulated, whether it's PIS that leads that referendum or Civic Platform or Halonia, having experience of how they treat those issues makes it clear that a referendum would be disastrous. The biggest success of what has happened in Poland in recent months is that we've started to talk on our terms. Instead of answering questions, when does life begin, for instance, we have started to say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when it starts. And the only thing that matters is the woman or the person that wants to have an abortion. The movement and politics. In terms of the movement's political strategy, says Eva, there are two major things that we are trying to push. One is a bill called Legal Abortion No Compromise. The bill would introduce the right to abortion wholesale, but obviously there's no parliamentary support for it. For now, it's more of a propaganda initiative in which activists will collect as many signatures as they can and propose to Parliament from below. The more mainstream strategy is the Rescue Bill, proposed by Razem MP Magda Beja and backed by more than 100 women's rights organisations. That bill basically aims to decriminalise helping with abortion, Ever explains, so that there's no actual threat of going to jail for supporting women accessing abortions. What we can see is that some MPs, even from PIS, are interested in this bill, though the hopes are still small that, it'll be, that it will be implemented. A number of high-profile cases are garnering public sympathy, Ever says. For instance, one in which a man was sentenced to six months in prison after driving his girlfriend to hospital after she began bleeding heavily from taking an abortion pill at home. The rescue bill was due to be voted on on February the 26th, shortly after we went to print. In their everyday work promoting the new initiatives, activists face routine harassment from ultranationalist and far-right groups. Just yesterday, Eva says, there was a situation where somebody who was collecting signatures in support of the rescue bill who was a was attacked by a member of the far right on the street. So there is an atmosphere of fear. The far right in its religious conservative iteration is already in government in Poland in the form of PIS. But look further down the ballot paper and you will find even nastier forces.
Even further to the right is Confederature, Eva explains. In the future, there is a threat of them and PIS con- cooperating and ending up in some kind of coalition. But for now, Confederature is at least trying to distinguish themselves from PIS. So they are critical of the decisions of PIS around the pandemic and the lockdown. They even claim that the pandemic is a hoax. In the recent presidential elections, the Confederica candidate, Bosak, got around 7% of the vote. Both PIS and Confederica are very connected to the church and, she says, to dangerous religious organisations like Ordu Loris, who became quite prominent in Poland. Ordo Luris is doing a lot also to threaten the doctors that would do abortions. They've sent out a threatening, threatening memo, for example, to different hospitals in Poland. On top of all of the more established right parties, there is a new movement emerging. Ruch Polska 2050, Poland 2050 movement. Led by Simon Holownia, who came third in the 2020 Polish presidential election. He's a Catholic, says Eva. He claims not to be far right and he is introducing this new way of talking about a dialogue, an open conversation. He claims he wants to separate the church from politics and he has managed to get some prominent politicians from a civic from civic platform into his ranks. He is trying to take votes from the left. He is, for instance, advocating action towards combating climate change, which is quite a new thing in Poland. So he seems to offer a new modern way of thinking, but at the same time he openly says that he wouldn't support support abortion in any case. So we have four major parties right now, PIS, Confederature, 2050 and Civic Platform. All of them are on the right, with PIS and Confederature on the far right. The growth of the far right has gone hand in hand with an assault on Poland's democratic institutions. PIS have introduced a series of judicial reforms that mean the Polish judiciary is a very political institution right now, says Eva Eva. And here we can see the problems that are culminating over the years. Systemic changes that are, piece by piece, eroding Poland's democratic institutions, the media, the judiciary. And then you have the small left and no real left media. It's going to be a very, very difficult struggle to get left-wing politics into the mainstream. What next? In the face of this bleak situation, the feminist movement and the new Polish left has, in spite of everything, broken through and inspired the courage and imagination of hundreds of thousands of Poles. The thing that was really hopeful about these protests was that quite quickly people started to radicalise. They realised, oh God, I can be on these streets, I can be attacked by the police. They can kettle us and use pepper gas, but that doesn't mean I should stop doing this. That means I need to push even more, says Eva. I've noticed, for instance, that there's a wave of high school students signing out of religion classes at high school. There is, there is a wave of apostasy happening all over Poland. People are starting to criticise the church more openly. They are less fearful of being critical, which is quite new in Poland, because we rather treated this as a sacred space which you couldn't criticise before. 
The feminist movement has allies in a modest wave of renewal in the trade union movement. One trade union that comes to mind is OZZ. Ever says it's a grassroots trade union founded on the initiative of employees at the Kajelski plant in Poznan and local social movements around 10 years ago. It has a number of new committees in different sectors like healthcare, theatres and education. But recently, around Christmas, they managed to unite with Amazon workers in Germany and organise some major strikes. Poland is a bit of a hub for Amazon in Europe. There are a lot of Amazon workers here. They openly supported the women's strike organisation and they openly support the legislation of abortion and so on. Other than in the OZZ, he ever says there is a very limited organisational relationship between trade unions and the women's strike. The crucial question now is how to turn the explosive protests of the autumn into a sustainable movement and crucial to that is what the left's core demands should be. In terms of its tone and attitude, says Eva, the left should take its lead from the women's strike. Although I'm quite critical of the women's strike organisation, I liked their unapologetic approach to certain things. They said we will not shut up. We will not stop using the bad words that you want us to stop using. We will not stop attacking the church. We will not stop saying how things are. Within Razem, she argues for a maximalist approach. I think we should go for the blank page, she says, for no restrictions on abortions. Otherwise, we end up falling into the narrative of the right-wingers. The line we should take is, autonomy of the body means you cannot force someone to give birth. It seems radical, but it's the patriarchal ideology that we've internalised in our own heads that makes it seem radical. It's actually not. Talking about what we think is right is the only way to move that discourse back to normal. And this is the problem we have on the Polish left. People are scared to look too radical. I understand why people are fearful, but at the same time, being fearful isn't going to get us very far. Women's Fight Back, Winter, Spring 2021, page 3, Life Under Lockdown. For years, Workers' Liberty has been talking about social reproduction, a term that covers all sorts of domestic labour, such as caring for people, keeping workers fed and fit for work and bringing children into the world. This work carries little status because it has traditionally been performed by women for free in the home. In the world of paid employment, so-called women's work, such as caring and cleaning, has also been notoriously undervalued and underpaid. Despite its low status, this work is essential for society and for the capitalist economy. Before the pandemic, a lot of it was taking place in our houses for free, supplemented by informal care networks, mostly women. From the capitalist perspective, our free labour, plus a small amount of government support, schools, nurseries, etc., meant that enough workers could keep turning up for work each day. The economy could keep ticking over and there was no real need to ask how this miracle was being achieved. It was an inadequate arrangement. Ask any woman who has been excluded from work or faced discrimination because of the lack of social support for caring roles. Ask any parent stressed about trying to work and care, trying to pay for private childcare in a low-waged economy or else lose their job. We already knew that the whole arrangement hung by a thread. Then COVID-19 came along and broke it. 
schools and childcare settings closed to the majority of children between March and September 2020 and again in January 2021. For most of that, the last year, a lot of parents have attempted to provide childcare and education at home, often at a cost of being able to work. Since Covid came along, it certainly felt like childcare and tasks relating to social production have been a lot more visible. But overall, the press, the unions and the Labour Party have not been nearly angry enough about what we've seen. The pandemic has shone a light on age-old problems, systematic devaluation of social reproduction and deep-rooted sexism in our society. We've got to use this opportunity to demand something radically better, especially because all evidence so far is that COVID has further entrenched women's inequality. Women's Fightback have spoken to several women about their experiences during the pandemic. We've also read some of the studies that have started to come out. We are beginning a conversation about what COVID-19 has revealed about women's roles in inequality and are starting to sketch out a vision for, the, for a way forward. Here is what they said. The experience of COVID has highlighted how oppressive and exclusionary the idea of the household is. Of course, from a public health point of view, there wasn't really any other way round this than to set guidelines based on who you live with. But it's a nightmare for women across the world because all the ways we have found to manage and mitigate the double or triple burden of paid employment and unpaid labour in the home and more general social reproduction of caring for our families and neighbours has been completely turned upside down. We always say it takes a village to raise a child. There shouldn't be so much expectation that all the caring can be done within one unit. The expectation that that women can care without wider social support is oppressive. I work specifically with teenage parents with young children in an area known for deprivation. The young mums were being instructed to isolate as a household, but there was no way they were going to do that. They may be living with partners, but they are all, but they are also young men and caring for their kids really does take a village. Their village tends to be their mum, their gran, their aunt, their sister. Sometimes it's their dad or granddad too, though less so. It is these same communities, working class communities, who are often being held up as rule breakers, but they are doing what is necessary. The household is really quite a middle class idea. So many community activities either run through the public or voluntary sector that support mums and babies were instantly shut down. Breastfeeding groups, mum and baby, toddler sessions, all that. This has been very hard on new mums. These services are a lifeline. We shouldn't be in a situation where our ability to manage our caring responsibilities hangs by a thread. All of this has highlighted how generally unsupportive society is for something that is so essential, caring and childcare. You'll never get any credit from society at large for playing any kind of a role in childcare. If looking after kids is what you do with your life, then it's not seen as work. Or if you take time off from your job to look after, after kids, it's frowned upon. You're seen as less committed to your job and they look for ways to get rid of you. But suddenly, when schools closed, the government started panicking that there wasn't enough childcare and piling pressure on schools to reopen. Turns out that we'd been doing something worthwhile all along. I work in a highly feminised workforce, but even then, as soon as lockdown began, we were expected to continue or our jobs with kids at home, with partners in the home working and no access to all the childcare support we had in place to support us previously. 
not to mention those who cared for older relatives. When the support was taken away from us, nobody really made allowances for that. We just had to get on with it. This pandemic has removed everything we knew we needed in our lives, but is very rarely accounted for, because we are not supposed to see it as essential work. If we saw it as essential, we would have to value it. For months, I was working until 10pm every night, just so I could keep on top of my job while giving some time to my daughter during the day. As a single mum, there was nobody else around for her, but I felt like I couldn't be asking for favours from work, so I just had to carry on. I'm exhausted. I've dropped down my hours at work from 4 to 2.5 days for childcare, but they haven't given me any less work to do. On the one hand, it's great that they've been flexible, but I'm very stressed about how behind I'm getting. When schools close, my manager said, just do what you can. In many ways it's helpful, but the end result is that I feel like a crap mum and a crap employee, failing on every front. My manager said, just do as much work as you can. I wish we could be given paid time off so we don't have this horrible feeling of trying to do everything and letting everyone down. Summary of TUC reports published January 2021. We went into the pandemic unequal and are likely to emerge even more unequal. The TUC report, Working Mums Paying the Price, has said that working class women will be hit hardest. Women have lost jobs, income and employment opportunities and it's all taken its toll on our mental health. Key findings. Although furlough has been available to working parents since April 2020, employers are not generally approving requests. Seven in ten requests for furlough have been turned down by employers, and employers have not been informing people of the scheme. 78% of mums affected by school closures have not been offered furlough by their employer. The TUC is calling for furlough to be a temporary legal right, although it would be better to have proper parental leave entitlement in the UK. A private sector part-time worker with two children under five said, I requested furlough and it was refused. My manager feared opening the floodgates, feared the wider business will think our team can manage without me and be subject to headcount reduction. Told to take unpaid leave, which I can't afford, I work for a global, multi-billion pound business. It's insane. Many others are in a similar situation. Nine out of ten mums say their mental health has negatively impacted experiencing levels of stress and anxiety. A TUC survey of mums during the first lockdown found that 30% regularly worked early in the morning, pre-8am, or late at night, post-8am. As this mum told the TUC, I have a three, six and seven year old and work nine to five at home. My husband usually works a 60 to 70 hour week. It means he cannot help with the children. They need constant encouragement and support with homeschooling. Then there's a three year old wanting everyone to play too. At 5pm when I technically finish work, it's then starting dinner, bath and bedtime, then cleaning up. By 8pm, I was exhausted but had to start working again. I finished at 1am and was up at 5.30am, as usual, with my three-year-old. I'm facing weeks, maybe longer, of this. I cannot sustain this. I just can't. One quarter of mums are worried they will lose their job, either through being singled out for redundancy, sacked or denied hours. Nearly half of mums, 48%, fear they will be treated negatively by their employer as a result of difficulties with childcare. 
One mum, a private sector worker working full time with two children under 10, one over 10, said, I have three children studying across three key stages and trying to work full time because I'm in fear of losing my job. I'm exhausted, I'm stressed and anxious and I'm only just about keeping myself and my children on track. I feel like I can't afford to ask to be furloughed, so literally have no choice but to carry on. A quarter of mums who replied to the survey were using annual leave to manage their childcare, but nearly one in five, 18%, had been forced to reduce their working hours and around one in 14, 7%, are taking unpaid leave from work and receiving no income. Very traditional gender roles persist. Only 42% of mums' surveys were being supported by a partner in their efforts at homeschooling. The TUC is demanding. Other countries have taken emergency steps to support parents. For example, in Germany, parents have been given an additional 10 days leave to support children and single parents an additional 20 days. In March, Italy approved 15 days paid parental leave for both parents while schools are closed at six. That's not... No, that's... Sorry. And the government must do the same. The UK government must do the same. The government must help working families balance paid work and childcare by reforming the system of parental leave and sick pay, including bringing in 10 days paid carer's leave from day one in a job for all parents. Currently, parents have no statutory right to paid leave to look after their children. A right to flexible work for all parents. Flexible working can take lots of different forms, including having predictable or set hours, working from home, job sharing, compressed hours and term time working. An increase in sick pay to at least the level of the real living wage for everyone in work to ensure workers can afford to to self-isolate if they need to. All newly self-employed parents to have access to the self-employed income support scheme. Women's Fight Back, page five, for a shorter working week by Ruth Cashman. The shorter working week should be a central demand for the new normal in post-pandemic recovery. So it's fortuitous timing for the publication of The Case for a Four-Day Week written by Anna Coote, Aidan Harper and Alfie Sterling. It argues that reduced working time is good for human well-being, for the natural environment and for building a prosperous economy and aims to provide a roadmap for a transition from today's standard five-day, 35-hour week towards four days or 30 hours as the new norm. The eight-hour day. Throughout human history, economic affairs have dominated human life. For generations, the low level of technology and industry meant that all our energies had to be devoted to the struggle to get the bare essentials. Under capitalism, however, we have made sufficient advances to produce all that we need. But instead of using this capacity to meet those needs, the capitalist system is predicated on a drive for more profit, on making the worker work longer and harder for less. Since the early days of the labour movement, there has been a struggle over working hours, the amount of time each day or week during which workers are compelled to sell our labour power to a boss in order to live. In 19th century Britain, a regular working day ranged from 10 to 16 hours, typically for six days a week. The eight-hour movement gathered strength and workers came out in their thousands to demand, 
eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours for what we will. Karl Marx maintained that the shortening of the working day was a basic prerequisite of what he described as the true realm of freedom, and this became a central issue for socialist and labour movements in industrialised countries across the world. Workers fought their bosses' attempts to lengthen the working week and eventually won victories to increase their leisure time. Gas workers in East London became the first workers in Britain to win the eight-hour week. In 1889, thousands of men were working long, hard days at the Beckton Gas Works in East London. Stokers would shovel coal for up to 13 hours a day and take home just 5 pence, 2.5 pence equivalent to today, per hour. Birmingham-born Will Thorne had been working since he was six. Now in his 30s and working at Beckton, Thorne decided to form a union, the National Union of Gas Workers and General Labourers. On Sunday the 31st of March 1889, a large crowd gathered at the Beckton Works to hear him make the case for the new union. Fellow wage slaves, I know that many of you have been working 18 hours under very hard and difficult conditions, that many of you must be dead tired. Often I have done the 18-hour shift. Let me tell you that you will never get any alteration in Sunday work, no alteration in any of your conditions or wages unless you join together and form a strong trade union. Then you will be able to have a voice and say how long you will work and how much you will do for a day's work. By your labour power you create things for the community, you create wealth and dividends, but you have no say, no voice in any of these matters. All this can be altered if you will join together and form a powerful union, not only for gas workers, but one that will embrace all kinds of general labourers. It is easy to break one stick, but when 50 sticks are together in one bundle, it is a much more difficult job. This was the birth of the union. Within weeks, it had 3,000 members. They went on strike to force the bosses to reduce the working hours. Their strike was a success and helped establish the principle of shorter working days. Through the 19th and 20th centuries, labour movement action pushed down work hours bit by bit. Now, with the retreat of militant trade unionism, this trend has stalled or reversed, in the UK and USA at least, and the working week is creeping back up. Tackling gender inequality. Sharing out work by creating more jobs on fewer hours would help those working long hours at the same time as creating jobs for those without work. It is harder to find well-paid part-time work and shortening the standard working week could and should be used to level up conditions between full and part-time workers. A shorter working week would also make it easier for women and men to share unpaid caring and domestic work more equally. At the moment, the financial incentive for two parent families is a twin-track strategy. Have one parent concentrating on career development and working long hours in a better-paid role, while the other, other parent, typically the mother, worked shorter hours in a lower-paid supplementary role so that they could focus on childcare. Even where both parents work, breadwinner and homemaker roles still exist. The authors of a four-day week are clear. The shorter working week ought not just give women a better work-life balance, but men too, as an essential step towards changing today's gendered pattern of time use. Men will not automatically use additional free time to take on more domestic responsibilities, but it is nonetheless necessary. The authors are right that a shorter working week is not just a foundational demand for the labour movement, but a hugely relevant socialist feminist demand for gender equality. Saving the environment. 
The book describes a range of social, economic and environmental benefits from a shorter working week. When people have more disposable time, they are also less likely to buy energy-intensive convenience goods such as process-ready meals or to opt for faster and less sustainable modes of transport such as car instead of a bike or a plane instead of a train. With unemployment rising, a four-day week offers a way of sharing out the number of jobs among more people, cutting the numbers of unemployed and releasing others from long working hours. With rates of pay protected, it can improve well-being by reducing stress and anxiety and making it easier to combine employment with domestic responsibilities. The book also discusses advantages of cutting the working week without pay protection. In this model, consumption and ecological damage is reduced by economy-wide wage restraint. Although trade unions are understandably committed to reducing the hours without pro rata loss of pay, SCORE envisages a gradual shift towards working taking reduced hours in return for a smaller annual increment. The gradual and cumulative effect will be to slow the rate at which incomes increase and consequently the amount that is consumed. Socialism and the Shorter Working Week As a wide-ranging survey of all the arguments for and all the routes to the four-day week, the book is effective, but we are not neutral in the whys and hows of shrinking the working week. We are not interested in improving the rate of exploitation of workers. Some of the arguments in the book are not pitched particularly radically. They put forward evidence, for instance, to show that when people work fewer hours, the quality of their work improves, which can boost economic productivity. In other words, the shorter working week can be good for business. Shortening working hours claws back some time from our bosses. Why would we want to work harder in the hours we are at work? We don't want to do the same amount of work in less time. We want to spread out more rationally. We want work spread out more rationally between more workers. Our socialist project is aimed at ending the dominance of economic concerns over human life. The demand to reduce working hours knits together the living struggles of the workers, but also points the way to the revolutionary transformation of society we want to see. A decent and rational society would cut the working week to a level which enables everyone to have free time and control over their activity, not to have their lives dominated by what an employer or the state tells them to do. We should share that work out equally so that we don't have some people overworked, some people in idleness and rich, and others, other people in idleness and poor, as under capitalism. There are many arguments for shorter working weeks. Our roadmap for transition should build the ability and confidence of the working class to transform society. Women's Fight Back. Discrimination on the Tube. An excerpt from an interview with Becky Crocker, Workers' Liberty and RMT activist. Page 6. When Ada, my daughter, was nearly two, I had a miscarriage. On the day I got back to work, they presented me with a case conference notification letter. The case conference process is designed for people with long-term health conditions that mean they are unable to do their job. Working in many of the jobs on London Underground requires doing certain things. You're supposed to evacuate a station in the emergency to be able to go down to the track. So there's a very small number of people who, for whatever reason, may not be able to do their job anymore. And that's what the procedure exists for. I used to be a rep and I told them, you can't do this. This is not what this is for. My manager pulled up my attendance history. In addition to the miscarriage, the list contained things like unpaid leave for domestic responsibilities, which it was my legal right to take, 
When I took time off to look after Ada when she was sick, I wasn't even being paid for it. The fact that I had had a miscarriage didn't matter to London Underground. There was a company-wide crackdown taking place. Anybody who did not have 96% attendance was put through this process, even though everybody knew that this was not what it had been designed for. People who had cancer, who were having treatment and were in recovery, were still put through this process and made to feel that their job was in the balance. It's daft. There's no economic sense to it. There have been studies done that demonstrate that these attendance policies cost more money to administer than they ever recoup in lost sick pay. But that's not the point. They very effectively create a sense of vulnerability. They make sure that you know your place. I had to go to the company doctor, talk about my medical history and make my case that there were no underlying medical reasons. I'd had a miscarriage. I'd just taken a month off work to recover from surgery. I also had a handful of other absences that were all to do with the stage of life I was at. I was a new mum with a kid in nursery who was repeatedly getting sick. I wasn't sleeping very well because my daughter didn't sleep very well and I was perpetually run down. Despite all of this, my attendance was still 90%. Over Christmas, I got gastric flu and I spent the entire time in bed thinking, I've lost my job, I've lost my job. When I got back to work, they called me into the office and my manager handed me a letter. I thought it was going to be an invitation to attend a company disciplinary interview so that they could try to sack me. Instead, the letter told me that the case conference had been dropped. The Piccadilly line drivers had gone on strike over Christmas against the abuse of the attendance policy and the letter read, I've been instructed by employee relations to abide by London Underground's attendance policy. And so there you have it. It was an admission that they should never have been doing any of it. It was totally outside of company policy. I still have that letter. I will never forgive London Underground for subjecting me to months of stress and fear for my job at the same time as I was dealing with the grief of losing a pregnancy. Things got so bad for my mental health around that time that I got counselling on the NHS. I told the counsellor I feel like I'm being punished for having a miscarriage. The counsellor replied, that's because you are. Women's Fight Back, page 7. Women of the Poplar Rebellion by Janine Booth Our story is set just after the First World War in Poplar, an East London borough with a population of 160,000 people crammed into the Docklands in the bend of the River Thames, Poplar, and the area just north of it, Bow. It was an impoverished and exclusively working-class area which had suffered greatly during the Great War. Working-class women juggled low-waged work with domestic chores, contending with overcrowded housing, unsanitary conditions, fatherless children and war-wounded husbands and sons. They had fought against profiteering companies, government stinginess and for the vote, which many, but not all, of them now had. Their experience in campaigning, particularly in the East London suffragettes, stood them in good stead for the battles they faced under the post-war Tory Liberal Coalition government. In 1919, Newly enfranchised women and men elected Labour candidates to local councils, including many in London. In November, Labour won 39 of the 42 seats on Poplar Borough Council, four of the successful candidates were women. Jane March, a former health visitor. Nellie Cressel, who had been a laundrette worker and, a, and suffrage activist. Jenny McKay, the first woman member of what would become the National Union of General Municipal Workers, forerunner of today's GMB, Julia Skur, who had led the suffragette deputation to the government protesting against women's sweated labour. All were listed in their nominations as married women, 
and all except Jenny were married to male popular Labour candidates, but they were all socialist women in their own right with records and politics to prove it. Although four women candidates may seem a small number, it was significantly better than in other East London boroughs where the Labour parties mustered only five women candidates between them. The newly elected Labour Council appointed four older men, a now defunct local government post ranking between councillor and mayor, including two women. Susan Lawrence, a former Tory who had defected to Labour in protest at the Conservative-led London County Council's treatment of its school workers, and Minnie Lansbury, a former school teacher and assistant secretary of the East London suffragettes. It also elected George Lansbury as mayor, a socialist and supporter of women's suffrage of national renown, but who nonetheless continued his political activity at the expense of his wife Bessie, herself a committed socialist who had to step back from activism to care for their large family. Like many dockside communities, Poplar had significant immigrant populations, and these were represented among its new council, its council's new women members. Julia Skirt was Irish, Minnie Lansbury the daughter of Jewish immigrants, and Jenny McKay the daughter of an Italian father. Having turfed out the previous municipal reform, Tory and Liberal administration of Poplar Council, Poplar Labour, Labour set about improving living conditions for their working class residents. They built the first new public housing for years and appointed housing inspectors who went to private rented housing and ordered landlords to improve them. They took the small charity-run tuberculosis dispensary into municipal ownership and expanded it. The council improved maternity and child welfare services, baths and wash houses. These policies brought about significant improvements to working class women's lives. Poplar's Labour Council applied its principles in its role as an employer. It put casual workers on permanent contracts, set a minimum wage at £4 per week and introduced equal pay for women and men. Labour Party policy supported equal pay, but unlike Poplar, many Labour councils saw policy as meaning aspirations for the future rather than principles to implement in the present. Recession and Defiance After a brief post-war boom, recession struck and as Dockside Borough Poplar was hit particularly hard, Facing the choice of backing down or defying the unfair local government funding system, Poplar's Labour movement chose the latter. In March 1921, the council voted to refuse to collect and pay that portion of the rates, called precepts, that it was supposed to give to cross-London bodies, including the London County Council. They did not simply take this stand as a budgeting decision, they mobilised people in support. Poplar's Labour activists knocked on doors, talked with people at work and on street corners. Poplar Labour women organised monthly events attended by hundreds and they held lots of demonstrations. The biggest was on the day of the main court hearing as the LCC applied to a judge to instruct Poplar to pay up. On the 29th of July 1921, 5,000 people marched the five miles from Poplar to the High Court on the Strand to demand that the authorities do battle with poverty and unemployment rather than with their defiant local council. Adorned with banners and placards, photographs show the march looking very impressive. But it also looked very male. Although women were active in community and political struggles, it seemed that they were not expected to go on marches. They were supposed to be looking after the home. There were lots of strong, inspiring women involved in the struggle, but there was still sexism and women were still prevented from participating in an equal level. Several of the councillors, including some of the women, gave evidence to the court describing Poplar's poverty and happily admitting to breaking the law. The judge told them to pay up or go to prison. He gave them the month of August to consider their position, so they spent the month 
reaffirming their refusal to pay the precepts and building their movement to prison. At the start of September, 30 Poplar Labour councillors were arrested and taken to prison. Five of the six women councillors and aldermen were on the list of those to be arrested. Jane March and several of the male councillors were left, left off for, the reasons, for reasons that were not clear. Huge crowds gathered outside the councillors' houses, especially those of Julia Skur and Minnie Lansbury, who were very popular local activists. The five women made an appointment with the sheriff to be arrested together at the town hall in Newby Place. They gave speeches from the town hall balcony to the thousands of assembled supporters. At one point, a man shouted out that they should stop the women being taken away. But Susan Lawrence quickly replied that they had just as much rights as the men to be arrested for their stunts. The sheriff drove them off at walking pace as far as the borough boundary as the crowds marched alongside them, cheering them on. Then he took the five women to HM Prison Holloway. Their 25 male colleagues were incarcerated in HMP Brixton. Prison conditions were dreadful and Nellie Cressel, who was eight months pregnant, Jenny McKay and Minnie Lansbury were all admitted to the hospital wing within days. Supporters marched to the prisons and held meetings outside. A fund to support the councillors' children attracted donations from far and wide. The councillors kept up their fight behind bars and within three weeks it persuaded the authorities allowed them to meet in prison. Initially only the male councillors met but soon after the women councillors were taken by car from Holloway to Brixton to join the meetings. They discussed prison conditions, their campaign for their release and for equalisation of rates and they discussed the practical business of working class life in Poplar. They continued to serve the people who elected them. Public outcry forced the government to order Nellie Cressel's release. She made legal history becoming the first person to be released from imprisonment for contempt of court without first having purged her contempt. When two other councils, Stepney and Bethnal Green, voted to take the same action as Poplar, the government knew that it was beaten and began negotiating the council's release. On the 13th of October, the remaining women were released and were taken by car to Brixton to meet their male colleagues and, in some cases, husbands. The government rushed through a law to introduce cross-London pooling of outdoor relief, what we would now call welfare benefits. Poplar gained over a quarter of a million pounds per year in 1921 money. It was a massive win. Still relevant today, as working-class women deal with a new weight wave of austerity, health crisis, unemployment and attacks on public services. Labour councils again face the choice of how to respond. Sadly, most are choosing to implement cuts rather than resist them, but we can choose to resist. Poplar's women organised as workers, as service users, as mothers, as community activists. We can do the same and in doing so, make our representatives in local councils do the right thing. Women's Fight Back Page 8. More Green Space by Natalia Cassidy. Exceptional times, like those that we are living through, often highlight the shortcomings in our society. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed many, from the chronic underfunding of our health service to the inability to care for the most vulnerable amongst us. We have also seen the shutting down of green spaces, particularly in cities, on the grounds that people should simply stay home. This is straightforwardly a class issue. Those with higher incomes are far more likely to live in houses with access to gardens, whilst those on lower incomes are more likely to live in flats with no gardens or perhaps some small communal green spaces that are likely to be less safe in terms of density of people per square metre than public parks. The shutting of big spacious parks makes locals less safe, not more. 
This is, of course, an issue that stretches beyond the immediate crisis. The need for clean, accessible and plentiful open space should be seen as a key demand of a socialist feminist programme. There are very few leisure activities in modern capitalism that are free and non-commodified. Almost everywhere we go to spend time outside the home, we are charged for the privilege. Coffee shops, pubs, cinemas all offer leisure and space to spend time with loved ones, but only for paying customers. The need for clean, safe, green space is especially important for those performing childcare. Today, this still overwhelmingly falls upon women who often have to negotiate the strain of juggling wage work with domestic work. Let's consider the case of a single earning household with two young children as an example. The weekend arrives and the kids are in need of activities and stimulation. Without a garden or the ability to pay for activities such as going to the cinema or swimming pool, the park fills an essential role in allowing these children to keep active and engage with those outside of their immediate social circle at their school. If these parks and green spaces are shut down, we deprive hundreds of thousands of working-class families of access to spaces in which they can engage in affordable leisure and exercise on a regular basis. Public parks have long been the target of assaults by the right and those who lament the use of land for broad social benefit rather than for luxury flats or office space. Parks have been decried as spaces of social decay, singled out as places where people drink, take drugs, engage in explicit acts, etc., These are used as ways to justify the shutting down of parks and the privatisation of our common spaces. The image painted of parks here is of course reversed when the right wants to demonise travelling communities when they occupy land in public parks, at which point parks are lauded for their cleanliness and contribution to the well-being of the common good. We should, as socialist feminists, resist all attempts at the privatisation of our spaces and campaign for the expansion of green, open, accessible spaces for all. Socialism is fundamentally about freedom and people's ability to engage freely and equitably in all that life and nature has to offer. Publicly owned and maintained green spaces are a crucial part of the world we are fighting for. 